0: When you need auto parts, O'ReillyAuto.com is just a few clicks away. Order online and pick up curbside at your local store. Visit O'ReillyAuto.com. Oh, oh,
1: oh, O'Reilly Auto Parts.
2: I've noticed a number of peculiar incidents among the members of the student body all having to do with rock and roll music. Uh,
3: Now, if you don't think this
0: song is the greatest song ever, I will fight you.
4: In 1972, David Bowie put out a concept album revolving around a character named Ziggy Stardust.
1: I'm Jim DeRogatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. And I'm Greg Codd of the Chicago Tribune. Jim and I tell you why the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars is worthy of the pantheon of classic albums. Then, we review the new album from rising R&B star Frank Ocean. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions.
4: little bit of the young Bay Area rocker Ty Siegel. Greg, I think he stole the show at the Pitchfork Music Festival in Union Park in Chicago last weekend. We wanted to mention Pitchfork because in its eight years in Union Park here in Chicago, it has become one of the barometers for the cutting edge of popular music in the U.S., really worldwide. Pitchfork, the webzine, has a reputation for being on the cutting edge of acts that are coming up. You see acts playing pitchfork in the middle of the day the first year and the next year they're on a Giant Stage at Coachella or at uh, Lollapalooza. 47,000 people over three days. Attendance was down. Now, weather in Chicago was brutal. We had horrible rain and we had horrible heat. Uh, Nevertheless, there were some highlights. Ty Siegel was one of them for me. I thought also the Cloud Nothings were absolutely phenomenal. Interestingly enough, both of those acts started as one-man bedroom bands that have since become full-on, groups that are ready to play to a field
1: of 30,000 people at a time, and that's impressive to see. Well, I think that's the issue you have with Pitchfork, Jim. You're going to see a lot of up-and-comers, and you're going to see a few up-and-comers who aren't quite ready for the primetime <laughs> stage. They look a little lost up they there. They up and
4: haven't come yet.
1: <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm thinking of a band like Ice Age, you know, these punks from Denmark, and uh, Youth Lagoon, this band from Idaho. They they clearly weren't ready for that primetime moment, but there are other instances where you see a band that has sort of evolved on the Pitchfork stage. You know, a couple of years ago, Slaybells, I know they're your favorite band, but I, I, I love they were awful Two years ago, I thought they were okay. This year, I thought they owned that festival. I thought they were on on Saturday afternoon. They really rose to the occasion on that main stage. Alexis Kraus emerged as a star on that stage, proving that she could hold your attention and get an entire field of fans energized. The other most impressive act at the festival for me was Willis Earl Beal, mm. a guy who shows up on stage with basically a reel-to-reel tape deck and his voice, and what a voice it is. I just saw him a few months ago at, at a small club in Chicago at the hideout, and it was a good show, but man, it just seemed in that time... He has gained so much confidence and so much presence on stage, and that voice. I mean, the only thing I could compare it to is a gigantic soul singer or preacher or gospel minister, sort of a combination of Otis Redding and Jesse Jackson or something like that. He's just an orator up there, but he's also got this incredible power and presence. So those were the two things that stood out for me. Well, and I'll tell you,
4: the final word on Pitchfork being the place to be last weekend was that Lady Gaga showed up and stood on the side of the stage (laughs) throughout the set of a Compton rapper, Kendrick Lamar, who I thought was dreadful, no cliche left unturned. Gaga did not take the stage, but she was there. I don't know if that's a jump-the-shark moment or evidence of ultimate hipness.
1: deep purples hush with those amazing organ chords from one John Lord. We're playing that because John Lord died at 71 of a pulmonary embolism recently, one of the great keyboardists in rock music, an innovator, a pioneer really. He deserves his place in the pantheon of great musicians who ever played rock and roll. Now, Lord grew up in the English countryside, but he came to London at a young age. He studied classical piano, played with some jazz and R&B combos. He was a serious musician. He worked with one of Ronnie Wood's early bands. He played on that 1964 Kinks hit, You Really Got Me. But his claim to fame, obviously, was forming Deep Purple with Richie Blackmore, Ian Pace, and the first singer in the band, Rod Evans. They were initially known as Roundabout, soon morphed into Deep Purple, and Lord was right at the center of the sound. His big vision was to fuse his classical music training with R&B and blues and turn it into something different. Now, there was one other thing he decided to do, and that was to plug his Hammond organ through a Marshall stack. And suddenly that thing sounded like no one had ever played it before in that particular way. It had a growl, a distinctive growl that John Lord brought to it. And some people would say Deep Purple was at the ground floor of heavy metal. There would be no heavy metal if John Lord hadn't plugged into that Marshall stack alongside Richie Blackmore's guitar. Now, those claims aside, they wrote some great music. Deep Purple was a band that reigned from the late 60s to mid-70s, broke up, then reunited... Lord went on to play with some other bands, including Whitesnake. But his biggest claim to fame, obviously Deep Purple, 150 million records sold. And the track we're going to play in tribute to Lord is one of their greatest compositions. Lord co-wrote this as he did all the other Deep Purple classics. It's called Highway Star, and it features that Hammond organ. Here's Deep Purple, Highway Star on Sound Opinions.
4: That is the classic Highway Star by Deep Purple from 1972's Machine Head album in homage to John Lord, Dead at the Age of 71.
2: Like some cat from Japan, he could lick on by smiling. He could live and to hide They came on so loaded, man, well hung the snow white tie.
1: You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and that is Ziggy Stardust from The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars by David Bowie, one of the iconic albums of the 70s. It came out in 1972 on its 40th anniversary high time, Jim, that we did a classic album dissection of this most revered of Bowie albums classic album dissection we look in depth at a particular album that has stood the test of time for lack of a better term clearly bowie has made dozens of albums in his career and this is constantly referenced as one of the high points in his career so we want to take a look at the genesis of the record how it came to be and then we're going to look in greater depth and detail into the actual music now the context for ziggy was that Bowie had been around since the 60s. He was an artist that was really trying to find his place in rock and roll and wasn't doing a very good job of it, frankly. You know, based out of London... Early Davy Jones not doing it for you? David Jones uh, changed his name to David Bowie. He was already playing with these identity roles that he would play to the hilt on Ziggy Stardust. But his music wasn't connecting. I mean, one of the issues was that... He was coming at it from a different place. I mean, rock was heading in this direction of authenticity. If you weren't based in the blues country or soul... Growing a beard, playing acoustic instruments by the end of the 60s, early 70s. You weren't really fitting in, man, with the the times as (laughs) as they were a-changin'. Bowie was coming from a different place. He was influenced by French ballad singers, you know, Jacques Brel and Berlin Cabaret, Brecht and Weill, show tunes, you know. He was clearly not a traditional rock and roller, never wanted to be, never thought he fit in, was trying to figure it out. Now, he was getting closer. At the point that he was ready to record Ziggy Stardust, he had already made four studio albums. He'd had a hit with Space Oddity in 1969, wasn't able to really capitalize on it. But then a significant thing happened with Hunky Dory coming out in late 1971.
2: What are we coming to? No room for me, no fun for you. I'll think about a world to come Where the books were found by the golden ones Written in pain, written in all By a puzzled man who questioned what we were here for All the strangers came today And it looks as though they're here
1: Here's Bowie posing on the album cover in a woman's dress, reclining on a couch. And you're going, Whoa, what's going on here? David Bowie clearly playing with some gender role reversals here. Now, what's in the air at the time? The ideas floating around for this glam rock movement in the UK. Uh, T Rex was the major pop star in the UK at this moment.
2: Oh, baby, My dogs
3: to fry. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was mad right in writing so dunger. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Alice Cooper was doing a lot of cross dressing, playing with a lot of sexual and violent references in the u.s. at this point the new york dolls were just starting to emerge in new york coming out wearing uh, high heels and wearing makeup on stage in addition to playing this trashy rock and roll I
2: always saw you I'm a looking for a kiss.
1: Bowie was processing all these ideas and trying to figure out from his own angle how he could approach it. Now, there was two things, that Hunky Dory album cover, and then in early 1972, an interview with a British music magazine in which he announced to the world that he's bisexual. Now, this ties in with some of the other music that was filtering into his life, Jim. Absolutely. He produced Mott the Hoople's
4: big hit, All the Young Dudes, in this period. He is meeting his heroes. He's hanging out with Lou Reed, rock and roll's original bisexual, Mm -hmm. ambisexual, and he's meeting Iggy Pop. He's going to go on to to work fruitfully with Iggy. You know, Greg, I want to back up one second and point out that in the history of sound opinions, there are three enduring fights which really get your venom <laughs> up regarding my opinion. One is about Bruce Springsteen. The other is about Tom Waits. The third is about David Bowie. I have always contended that Bowie is a second-tier rock star. The Great Chameleon. Some people celebrate him for this, changing his guises all the time, wearing different hats. Other people can denigrate. You know, he he took the ideas of the Velvet Underground, he took the ideas of Iggy Pop, and he kind of made pop out of them. I found a great interview he did right in this period, Circa Ziggy, where he says, I'm not a musician. I have a creative force inside me, and it just finds its way out through music.
2: Um, Well, all right. I find that I'm a a person who um, can take on the guises of of different people that I meet, I can switch accents in in seconds of meeting somebody and I can adopt their accent. I've always found that I collect, I'm a collector. Um, And I've always just seemed to collect personalities, um, ideas, I have a hodgepodge philosophy which really is very minimal.
4: I think David Bowie has written some great songs. I think he could take ideas and bring them uh, into a different light. I think he's at his best when he dropped The Pretense, those three Berlin albums that would come later in the 70s. And I think he's at his best on Ziggy Stardust. Why? Because he saw this originally as a Broadway production or a television show. It failed to become either. It did become a concert film by D.A. Pennebacher, almost by accident, when he films the last Ziggy performance on July 3rd, 1973. But I think Bowie here is at his campiest and most far forward in the over-the-top theatricality. It's hard to buy him when he's playing White soul music, or funk, or, or later on when he decides to become Sonic Youth, you know, in Tin Machine. You know, some of these guys, as he's worn, have been really silly. But Ziggy was the silliest guys of all, and therefore, I think, the most successful. Greg and I will talk more about the success of The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars during the second half of our classic album, Dissection. That's coming up in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Then, later in the show, we'll review the new album from R&B singer Frank Ocean.
2: Pushing through the market square So many mothers sighing News had just come over We had five years left crying News guy wept and told us Earth oh, was really dying He cried so much his face was wet Then I knew he was not lying I heard telephone, opera house Melodies, some boys, toys, electric arms, and TVs. My brain hurt like a warehouse, it had no room to spare. I had to cram so many things to store everything in there, and all the facts.
4: Welcome back to Sound Opinions. That is a song called It Ain't Easy from David Bowie's 1972 album The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. Greg and I are dissecting this classic disc this week as part of our regular classic album dissection series and I'm tackling side one. This album is celebrated as a concept album and as we know, concept albums have to have a story and a wacky story this one is. It appears that Ziggy, much like Tommy in the Who's psychedelic epic is a messenger. He might be alien. He might be a human who has alien in him. But he's coming to tell Earth that Earth is not going to last much longer than five years. The world is going to end. As a result, all the adults lose it. They don't care anymore about anything responsibility-wise. And the kids take over. The kids are wreaking havoc. They're, they're living this life of hedonism and excess and just running wild in the streets, which Ziggy, the alien, or is he messenger, kind of champions. He's, he's partly about sexual experimentation, about drug access. He is the spirit of passionate rock and roll who is here to, to spread the word that the world's going to end. But then some hope comes in. I'm covering side one. Side one lays out all of this story. These otherworldly beings, these immortals, are going to come and possibly save us. Starman is the song where, where Bowie gives us this story.
2: Didn't know what time it was. The lights were low, oh, oh. I leaned back on my radio, oh, oh. Some cat was laying down some rock and roll. That of only Then the loud sound that seemed to fight. Came back like a slow voice, oh no. the sky
4: Starman is the only hit single on this album. This was not a huge hit. In the U.S., it only made number 75 on the charts. It hit number 5 in the U.K., but by Bowie standards, or by the standards of T-Rex, Mark Bolan at the time, or even All the Young Dudes, that's not a phenomenal hit. I think the story's a little dense, and people were a little confused. Bowie's looking really weird on the cover. But there are some great things about this album. Number one is The Spiders from Mars. People think that a lot of the string arrangements and the keyboard work, a lot of great Mellotron on this album, were done by Rick Wakeman, who had played on the earlier Bowie records, including Space Oddity and Hunky Dory. He did not play on this one. He went off to join, yes. Mick Ronson is not only playing phenomenal guitar, but he's doing the strings, he's doing the backing vocals, he's doing piano. I also want to give a shout-out to Mick Woodmansey on drums. Great snare drum work, really deft playing Trevor Boulder on bass. So the album rocks hard. Bowie is giving us this crazy story, but you don't have to pay all that much attention to it. If what I just told you makes no sense, you know, I've been listening for 30 years to this album myself, and it's never made any sense to me. I don't know, aliens, whatever. Who are the spiders from Mars? Whatever. Of course, as in Tommy or Jesus Christ Superstar, there has to be a sacrifice, right, of this guru figure so that humanity might live. Where did all this come from? Like I said, I think he's ripping off Tommy a lot. Also, Greg, it's interesting. He was listening to the legendary Stardust Cowboy a lot in this era. He would later go on to cover him. He has said that part of the Ziggy Stardust name came from the legendary Stardust Cowboy. The other part, the Ziggy part, he said he wanted a name that began with Z. He said there used to be a tailor shop in his neighborhood named Ziggy's, and he also loved Iggy Pop. So here we get Ziggy, Stardust, but Bowie is already playing with all these identities. My favorite song on the album, the one I'm going to play here, is Moon Age Daydream. This is widely forgotten, but he had released it as a single months before the release of Ziggy Stardust, but not under his name. It was under the name of Arnold Corns. Mm. He just decided, I'm going to even, even become different people, not just wear different costumes. It flopped. But something about this song and its sublime silliness... I just love it to pieces. Part of it is that melody, the way it repeats, and I guess it's on a Mellotron. I don't think it's a flute. You know, that little hook, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. You know, it's killer. But also, when you tell me Bowie is a genius and not just a great silly rock and roller, I want you to think about these lyrics, Greg. Keep your electric eye on me, babe. Put your ray gun to my head. Press your space face close to mine, love. And freak out in a moon-age daydream. I think David Bowie is a really smart man. I think he knows how silly that is, even at the height of his druggy, campy excess. He had to know that that was really ridiculous. But a lot of times, ridiculousness is great rock and roll. Here's Moon Age Daydream from Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars on Sound Opinions. I'm an
2: alligator. I'm a mama papa coming for you. I'm a space invader. I'll be a rock and roll and bitch for you.
4: That is Moon Age
1: Daydream by David Bowie from Ziggy Stardust. Greg, don't you just love that? Yeah, it's a very progressive rock moment, isn't it, Jim, in the yeah. middle of this record? They were coming up with some really inventive parts, and that's actually a combination of a baritone saxophone and a penny whistle that they came up with. A, a weird combination of instruments, but they were referencing this old doo wop song by the Hollywood Argyles that Bowie had heard and said, I, wanna, I want something like that on my record. I've also seen him in interviews say he was trying to write Telegram Sam by (laughs) T-Rex. Can you blame him? It was a huge hit. Bowie was incredibly jealous of the success that uh, Mark Bolin and T-Rex were having in the U.K. He wanted a piece of that action as well. You're much harsher on Bowie than I am. I think he was one of the most, if not the most, influential figure in in 70s music. Uh, Not only in bringing forward the ideas of bands like the Stooges and the Velvet Underground, who had virtually been entirely ignored until Bowie decided, hey, these guys are worth listening to, you should pay attention to them, but also the ideas about identity that he was talking about on this record were hugely influential. You wouldn't have any of the transformations that you've seen in pop performers over the last 40 years if it weren't for Bowie's lead in this area. Now, you took care of side one of the record, in which he sort of sets up this scenario. You know, the the planet's dying, this extraterrestrial figure comes down, sort of a messianic figure comes down to the plan, and he's going to mess around with the kids and become the new leader. Well, I did forget to mention that
4: Side One ends with a cover, It Ain't Easy, by one singer-songwriter, Ron Davies, which makes no sense whatsoever. There was also a Chuck Berry cover that was going to be on the album that he bounced at the last minute.
1: Yeah, Bowie was incredibly prolific during this period of time. He was writing a a series of songs, and even he admits that he sort of lost the plot after a while and started cobbling this record together that it doesn't really hold together as the song cycle that some people make it out to be. But I think it's Side 2 is where things really gel for him and where you can really get the sweep and the power of of Ziggy Stardust and what he was trying to aim for. I think it's the best side of music on the record. It's far superior to Side 1 as far as I'm concerned. Oh, that's why I gave it to you. (laughs) But the combination, you mentioned Ronson earlier. I don't think his role on this record can be overestimated. He's just incredibly influential, not only as a guitarist, but as an arranger, as a foil. Bowie was kind of playing off rock tradition. He was not a rock traditionalist, but he loved that Mick-Keith combo in the Rolling Stones, and he kind of saw Ronson and him as sort of having that yin-yang relationship in this band. And it was a consciously male-female dualism that he was looking for.
2: When I first heard him play,
1: I thought, oh, that's, that's my Jeff
2: Beck. He is fantastic. This kid is great. And so I sort of hoodwinked him into working with him. I didn't quite actually have to tell him in the beginning that we'd have to wear makeup and
0: and because uh, Mick came from Hull, you know, and was very down to earth, as was uh, the rest of the spider. You know, blo- what do you mean makeup? I said, well, I,
2: you know, it might sort of and so I, I, I reverted to things like. Um, you looked
1: very green tonight on stage. If you, I think if you wore makeup, you'd probably look a little more natural-looking. Ronson was this very macho figure from the north of England. Mm-hmm. Bowie was this Fay London boy, and he was consciously playing off this contrast with with Ronson on this record. Mm-hmm. ¶¶ Now, there's a package of songs on side, two where you get this triple pack of the hardest rock that I think Bowie had made to this point so far. The prominence of the guitar, it was crucial, I think, to the flowering of Ziggy and and Bowie's uh, prominence as as a commercial force. You know, his music before had been primarily piano-driven. Bowie's a piano player. He was coming out of this kind of cabaret tradition, this song and dance tradition, as opposed to rock. Ronson really brought the rock on this record. And you can really hear it in those songs here. Hang on to yourself. Ziggy Stardust, Suffragette City, in the middle of side two. to yourself, Jim, when you listen to that song, you're hearing the genesis in some ways of the Sex Pistols. That riff, that Ronson guitar riff formed the basis of God Save the Queen a few years later by the Sex Pistols. Glenn Matlock basically owned up to that, said, yeah, we were listening to a lot of Bowie, we loved Ronson's guitar playing, and that breathless pace of that song really anticipates punk in a lot of ways. Clearly he was referencing his heroes, Iggy and, and Lou Reed, but bringing it forward to the point where groups like the Sex Pistols would hear it later on and reference it themselves. In Ziggy Stardust, the song we played at the very top of the uh, album dissection, that's a band member basically telling the story of Ziggy. Ziggy played guitar, he was a hero to us all, but he had to die. He had to, he had to <laughs> fade from view.
4: Because that's what happens in all messianic concept albums. And,
1: and you were making fun of some of the lyrics, and I think Bowie was was making fun of what he saw as this traditional rock and roll burnout. You know, it's better to burn out than fade away kind of cliché that he already saw rock and roll becoming. So in a lot of ways, this album is sort of subverting and commenting on the whole rock and roll tradition that Bowie always felt he was an outsider to. He never belonged in that tradition. And no wonder he killed this character off at the end. He said, you know, the only way this thing is going to end it's going to end badly for this guy. But he had one last big message to give. In the last song on the record, Rock and Roll Suicide, I think he ties it all together. He ties his career together. He ties what was going on in England into this concept. He ties this idea of the misfit, the loner, the forgotten, the outsider being accepted, at least in David Bowie's world. So... You know, this was all very calculated. Later on, he would admit, yeah, you know, I wasn't really a bisexual, but he was experimenting with the bisexual lifestyle. And for him to come out on Hunky Dory album wearing a dress and then announcing that he was a bisexual in an interview uh, a month later, and then a few months later, come out with a Ziggy Stardust album in which he plays this alien gay figure it was a hugely powerful statement at the time well it also got him a lot of press greg
4: i mean there's a cynical element here in how do you stand out in this world you know he's trying to be the most outrageous you said earlier, other chameleons all owe a debt to Bowie, and it's true. You know, for better or worse, mm-hmm. you know,
1: Madonna or Lady Gaga, it all comes from here. Yeah, but it wasn't like an easy position to take, Jim. I mean, it, you know, announcing that you're bisexual, that you're gay at the yeah, time it was courage. something that gets you get you beat up. I mean, well, and it did make you an alien in society at that time, and mm-hmm. so so the metaphor is is really appropriate in that regard. This album comes out in June of '72. Remember, a month later, there was like 700 people. That, that marched together for the first time in the first gay pride march in U.K. history. And the cops nearly outnumbered the number of marchers because they were so fearful of this group of people. Like, what are they going to do? You know, who are these weirdos taking over? Yeah. Uh, it was it was hard to come out of the closet at that time. It was not an easy decision to make for Bowie to do it maybe as a marketing thing. But at the same time, he was saying, you know, I don't feel a part Of the mainstream either I don't feel accepted anywhere I don't feel accepted in rock and roll I don't feel accepted in society and in the song rock and roll suicide he's basically reaching out to this new constituency so as he's saying you're not alone give me your hands because you're wonderful Wow that was a huge statement that people decades later were still referencing as a powerful moment in their lives to see Bowie come out and make a statement like this to see Bowie and Ronson on top of the pops, with Bowie slinging his arm around Ronson as they performed one of the songs from Ziggy Stardust. Ronson, it must be said, looking supremely uncomfortable <laughs> in all that eyeshadow. But at the same time, here's these two guys dressed in this kind of foppish style with the makeup on and clearly embracing. It was a, a powerful statement. To The Outsiders. And that's really what this album is about. I think it's about this idea that the Outsiders are welcome in this world. So even as the rock and roll suicide ends the rock star's life and Ziggy is done, torn apart by his followers at the end of the album, he's also embracing them and bringing them in, into his world and saying, you are accepted Well, here. he
4: he had to die so that the infinites or starmen could save <laughs> humanity. You, you got away from the story.
1: I'm glad you figured that out for me because I think that's even fair. Bowie is unclear as exactly Well, there are where the story is going at this there time. There are footnotes to the footnotes to the footnotes on the web. But here's the point. When he comes out and makes a statement like this, and Boy George in his biography decades later says, even if Bowie's claim that he was a bisexual was a fashionable hoax, he marginalized himself for a sizable chunk of his career. He took a risk that nobody else cared to make, and in the process changed many lives. And I think that's a central message here, not only as a as symbolic Figure Socially, but in the pop star realm, I think, you know, when you talk about the great chameleons over time in the pop realm, Boy George, Madonna, Lady Gaga, these kind of performers owe a huge debt to Bowie. And then on the punk side of things, when you hear the the Sex Pistols referencing Mick Ronson riffs, it cannot be overestimated the, the influence that he had on the punk rock movement and bringing forward figures like Lou Reed and Iggy Pop with him to become central figures in that world. So the track I'm going to play to sort of sum up Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars and side to the final track on the album, Rock and Roll Suicide, from David Bowie on Sound Opinions. Time takes a cigarette, puts it in your mouth.
2: You pull on your finger, then another finger, then cigarette. The water wall is calling. It lingers, then you forget Oh, ho, oh, oh, ho, oh. ho You're a rock and roll suicide You're too old to lose it Too young to choose it And the clock waits so patiently on your song You walk past the cafe which you don't need when you've lived too long. Oh no, 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 you're a rock and roll suicide. Shift breaks the a- snarling as to stumble across the road. But the day breaks instead, so you hurry home. Don't let the sun blast your shadow. Don't let the milk float, rob your mind They're so natural, religiously unkind Oh no, love, you're not alone
1: That was Rock and Roll Suicide by David Bowie on the album The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. That concludes our dissection of that classic album. If you have a thought on that record or can't believe we missed pointing out something about it that you found interesting, give us a call on our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. Coming up next on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, we take a look at another artist who has put his sexuality out there, R&B singer Frank Ocean.
2: She kneels before the grave, a brave son Who gave his life to save a gun That hovers between the headstone And her eyes, for the penetrate of grieving You love, a boy and girl the talking That only they can share in you. A love so strong it tears their hearts to pieces. Through the bleeding hours of mourning, love is callous in its choosing, stooping over.
3: Super rich kids with nothing but fake friends Start my day up on the roof
1: Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and that is Super Rich Kids from Frank Ocean and his second album called Channel Orange. Now, Frank Ocean has been in the news a lot lately. We're going to lead up to that in a second, but give you a little background first. He came out of New Orleans. He actually was going to the University of New Orleans when Hurricane Katrina hit in 2005, Left the city soon after, moved to Los Angeles. He had aspirations to become a singer and songwriter. He ended up scoring a songwriting deal there and writing tracks for people like Justin Bieber, John Legend, and Brandy. Then he signed a solo artist deal with Def Jam in late 2009. Along the way, he met the notorious hip hop collective On Future Wolfgang Kill Them All and began writing for them as well. Now, he self-released his first album, basically a mixtape, called Nostalgia Ultra in 2011. It got a lot of acclaim. And later in the year, he contributed vocals to key albums by Beyoncé, Tyler, the creator from Odd Future, and that Jay-Z and Kanye West album, Watch the Throne. So, huge year for 2011, building up a lot of anticipation for what would become Channel Orange. Now, Ocean stoked the news cycle even more by pre-releasing the liner notes to that album. Basically a letter in which Ocean revealed that when he was 19 years old, he's now 24, he fell in love with a man. Now, it was a beautiful piece of writing, but obviously the story for the media was that here was this R&B artist associated with a notorious hip-hop group who was essentially outing himself, admitting that he was a bisexual. Now, the album has been reviewed in that light. We're going to give you our review in a second, but we're going to play a track from it first. It's called Bad Religion from Frank Ocean on Sound Opinions.
3: Taxi driver Be my strength for the hour Leave the meter running It's rush hour So take the streets if you wanna Just outrun the demons, could you? He said Allahu Akbar I told him don't curse me Boy, boy, you need prayer Guess it couldn't hurt me If it brings me to my knees It's a bad religion Ooh, mm-hmm. the sun quite in love To me it's nothing but one night calls Inside night much my sorrow fall Where I've got three lives Balanced on my head like stick knives I can't tell you the truth about my disguise I can't trust no one And you say, la akbar I told them, don't curse me But boy, you need prayer I guess they couldn't hurt me If it brings me to my knees It's a bad religion It's nothing but a one man my i can never make them love me
4: that was bad religion by frank ocean from his first proper album channel orange on sound opinions Greg, this is the sort of disc that critics live for. You know, there is so much here, at least you and I do. I do not think it is an exaggeration to say that uh, young Frank Ocean is a contender. He's not there yet, but he's on the road to being up there with Marvin Gaye, Stevie Wonder, Sly Stone, Prince. What a fascinating voice. Musically, he seems to know no boundaries. He's interested in all sorts of sound, bringing them into R&B, which has really been confined in a narrow way in recent years. He's every bit as randy sexually as an R. Kelly or a Marvin Gaye was, but he's doing it in a way which is really vulnerable and soulful and open. All of that having been said, I can't give this a buy-it. It's a burn-it record for a very simple Mistake. The album is interrupted every time it begins to build a flow for me between these brilliant songs about religion, about class, about sex. There are these little throwaway skits, you know, bits of of cell phone conversation or a 20- or 30-second song about fertilizer. And, you know, it really interrupts the flow of the record. I would love to go through this, edit it for him, and I think he'd have a masterpiece. He obviously is an artist to watch. I wish I could give him a a, a buy-it. Right now I think you
1: have to hear the this music, but there are moments on this album that drag it down, so it's only a burn it. You know, I have the same reservations about those instrumental snippets that are on the record, Jim, but it doesn't drag this record down for me. At the end of the day, I focus on those 12 tracks that are the core of this record, and and they win me over. The other thing I'd like to add about this, you know, there was a big deal made about his coming out, but what I love about it is how he underplays it on this record. It's very natural, and I think that's the strongest thing he could have done to promote the cause within the hip-hop and R&B community is just make it feel like, hey, it's no big deal. Well, everything Odd Future did played like a gimmick, and he has no gimmicks on his album at all. There are no gimmicks. In fact, the album is amazingly subtle. For a major label release... He underplays it so much. I mean, his picture isn't even on the album cover. Mm. The big theme here is disconnection in that, in that land of luxury. Here he is coming from New Orleans, this this bisexual kid from New Orleans, not really fitting in, right? And seeing this sunny, narcotizing climate as a sort of a prison. You know, a lot of the people in this record are on drugs. And I think that's a metaphor for what he sees as a very numbing, soulless kind of environment that he found in California. As a major label debut, I don't think he could have made a better record. It's a buy-it record all the way for me. If you've got a viewpoint on Channel Orange or anything else we talk about on this show, give us a call at 888-859-1800. Next week, we've got an in-studio performance and an interview with a rising alt-country star, Lydia Lovelace. Greg, as always, we have some
4: thank yous to say on the way out. Sound Opinions is produced by Jason Saldana and Robin Lynn. Our assistant producers are Annie Minoff and Michael DeBonis. And our intern is Deborah Olalea. Plus our fearless leader, our executive producer, Tori southside Malatia. He's been gone all week. Last I saw him, he was in the mosh pit at the Liturgy performance at Pitchfork. Every time I call.
1: Sound opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New messages.
0: Hi, my name is Mike. I live in Richmond, Illinois. A couple of weeks ago, one of your callers said you should do a show on controversial songs, and that John Lennon's Imagine was controversial. I got news for you. That song was a flower child vision or a fantasy that he had compared to is deliberately controversial songs. Uh, is deliberately controversial songs could be the notorious uh, "We're All Water." Matter of fact, We're All Water it was actually banned from a radio airplay. John Lennon knew the importance and value of controversy more than anybody, which is why he spent a week in bed with his new wife, Yoko Ono, singing Give Peace a Chance in front of the media. did this as, a, in his own words, a commercial for peace. records, millions and millions and millions of records, as well as cancer tickets. Keep up the good work, guys. Bye. Hi, this is Tanya McAvoy calling from Denver, Colorado, and I was calling in regards to your reviews of the best album so far, and I'd just like to comment that that Lana Del Rey is the worst thing I think I've ever heard in my entire life. Next to, I think I haven't had that Verse of a reaction to music since with biscuit, and I'm not even kidding. I was working and it came on, and I tried to listen to it for like 10 seconds. I thought for sure you guys wouldn't play very much more of it. and It just kept going on and it's just painful. off my own headphones and broke them because I felt like I was going to be sick. Oh, I just do not get it. What do people see in this talentless hack? Okay, thanks a lot. Love the
1: show. Bye-bye. Hey, guys. In response to the best album of the year, I was pretty much running with Japan Droids up until about last week when I picked up the Mystery Jets Radland. It is a really great album kind of thematically all about how music plays a role in every part of our lives, like our relationships and greatest hits.
4: Uh, so you up the great work. Talk to you later. Bye.
0: No more messages.
4: To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX. At Progressive, we know
0: there's nothing like the feeling of riding your motorcycle with your buddies on the open road. It's a potent cocktail of thrills, laughter, and pure adrenaline. A feeling that would be impossible to recreate on the radio. Until now. Hit it, sound effects guy. I'm real proud of you, son. Wow, that was terrible. Our apologies for even trying. Quote with Progressive and see if you could save with America's number one motorcycle insurer. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates.